chapter, please, the fifth book in the Old Testament, becomes, from this chapter comes this message today on Mother's Day. Just keep that open on your lap there, if you will, please. Some questions are rhetorical and they don't really need an answer, but there is one question that needs an answer. The question is, is my home genuinely Christian, authentically Christian? I'm not asking, um, do you say pr the prayer before meals or do you have any of these plaques, you know, um, on your refrigerator, Christ is the unseen a guest at every meal or however that goes. or It's not the question of um, do the people who live in your, at your address go to church on Sunday. The question is, is your home authentically and genuinely Christian? The reason why the answer to that question is so important is because we face unprecedented challenges for the future. A while back, a man by the name of Nesbitt wrote a book called Megatrends. Some of you have read that. In this book, he said, sociologists agree that the traditional family is struggling in the web of change, and the strain is increasingly evident. The dissolution of home life, the shocking number of teenage suicides, and the mounting crimes against children tell a painful story even a close-knit family feels an unraveling of cherished relationships. He goes on to say that by the year 2000, there'll be more people living alone than as families. And he said hundreds of thousands of children will not know what a hometown is, and millions will live in skyscraper neighborhoods inhabited by strangers. Senator Boren made an interesting observation the other night at the banquet of, of educators. He said that now 20% of all the children living in the urban areas of this country have no parents. They are either raised by their grandparents or by social institutions, 20% of them. A while back, a man by the name of Alvin Toffler He's the person who wrote the shocking book entitled Future Shock that many of us have in our libraries. Has written a new book called The Third Wave. Listen to what he says. A powerful tide is, searching, is surging across much of the world today, creating a new and often bizarre environment in which to work, play, marry, raise children, or retire. In this bewildering context, Businessmen swim against highly erratic economic currents. Politicians see their ratings bob wildly up and down. Universities, hospitals, and other institutions battle desperately against inflation. Value systems splinter and crash while the lifeboats of family, church, and states are hurled madly about. Most people make the serious mistake of thinking and believing that the world they have known will extend 
and endure forever. It isn't true. The third wave of the future in which we are now engaged makes a quantum leap from what we have known in the familiar waters of yesterday to the uncharted course of tomorrow. If you don't believe that, then those of you who believe that the family is still the working man and the housekeeping wife and two children might ask, how many families are still like that? The, the, the answer is an astonishing 7%. 93% of the families today are not like the first and second wave. Now let me give you a definition of what he means by these waves. He's actually talking about eras or periods in history. He calls the first wave the agricultural wave. It's kind of like the little house on the prairie where people kind of carve their living out of the land and they, 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 cooked their, they grew their own food and they taught in the homes, all those kind of things. He calls that family of the first wave the extended family. Then came the second wave. He calls it the industrial wave. People began to move to the cities, and these large cities began to grow and expand with all kinds of problems in the urban areas of crime and disease and, and, and all those problems that exist. And people began to do things industrially and, and with machines. He calls the third wave the uh, wave of technology. And he doesn't, have a, he doesn't have a name for the family of the third wave, but he says this. It may be undefinable if it's so, as he put it, bizarre. It, it's so extreme, it lacks a tag. It's a computer age. It's the technology age. It's an age in which so many things are changing. He says, listen, we're witnessing a population explosion of solos people who live alone outside the family altogether. Between 1970 and 1978, the number of persons between the ages 14 and 34 who lived alone nearly tripled in the United States, rising from one and a half million to 4.3 million in eight years. Today, he says, a fifth of all households in the United States consists of one person living solo, he says, not all these people are loners forced into solo life. Many deliberately choose it over another alternative. If you're trying to raise a family in the same way as you were raised, he says, you're going to have a tough time, end quote. The people of the third wave, that's us. And we're not like, really, not unlike the people of this text. The children of Israel are about to move into the third wave. The first wave was, the, was bondage in Egypt where men made bricks and people lived in slavery and they went day after day to the same old routine. The second wave was the exodus and the wilderness wanderings. And now they come to the threshold of the third wave. And Moses, as God speaks to him, is about ready to give them some instructions for the third wave. It's the book of Deuteronomy. The word means second law, and it means literally, it's time to take a second look at the law. In light of the fact, he's saying, 
that you're entering into the third wave in an environment of cities that you did not build, houses that you did not construct, and you're going to eat from gardens that you did not plant in this age of technology and affluence like a land flowing with milk and honey. You need to take a hard look at the law of God. And he says in verse 24 that the reason why they need to take a second look at the law is not just so that their life will be better in the new land, but he's saying it's the only way you're going to survive. In the third wave, if a person doesn't return to the law of God, he says, you will not survive. And the whole key to the success of this nation in the new land, he's thrusting upon the shoulders of the family. And he's saying, in essence, that unless that family is authentic in this new age, there's no way this nation can survive. And I believe that from this text, there are four essentials that mark out or characterize an authentic home genuinely, authentically Christian home. They are these. First, the love of God permeates the life of the parent. The love of God permeates the lives of the parents. Listen, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And verses 4 and 5 connect to verse 2. And it's obvious in verse 2 that he's talking to the father, to the parent. So what he's saying is this, that in the age of the third wave, there must be in the lives of parents the permeating Love of God. That word permeate, by the way, means to pass through the pores. So passing through the pores of these parents in these authentic homes is the love of God. Now, it sure is hard to teach your child a principle that you don't practice. It's hard to teach them to be honest when they see your dishonesty in mine. It's hard to teach them to respect people with their, with their language if they hear profanity and vulgarity from us. It's hard to teach them to be compassionate and caring for others and respectful if they see us indifferent and dispassionate and unconcerned. And it's hard to teach a child a love for God when he knows that that love of God does not permeate the life of his parent. Now, I know that what some of you are thinking, well, what does that mean that love permeates the life of the parent? You, you preachers are always talking in platitudes and, and con abstractions and concepts. What does it mean when you say that love must permeate the life of the parent? Well, he tells us in verse 2 and 3 how that happens. First, there is a fear of God. Does that mean that one cringes before God? No. It means that he has an awesome respect for God and an awful fear that he will fail him. And he's grieved when he knows that his life does not square with God. When Alfred Smith was governor of New York, he's running for president of the United States. 
And he went over to Chicago. Sadaisical, and he, he just kind of said, man, he said, I want to meet you to meet an old buddy of mine. This is Al Smith. Let's welcome Al Smith. And Alfred E. Smith, governor of New York, got up and said, when I was a little boy, my father took me to a parade in downtown New York City. And I was just running around and having a good time and playing and not really paying any attention. And he said, all of a sudden, my father grabbed my hand and I could feel a tingle in his hands. And he jerked me around and he said, straighten up and take off your hat. The mayor of New York City is passing by. And then he said something shocking. He said, gentlemen, Alfred E. Smith, the governor of New York, bids you good night and walked out. And what he was saying is this. There must be a sense of respect for certain individuals. And God said, if love for me permeates your life, that means that you have an awesome respect for me. Second, it means really not just an awesome respect for God, but that a person has a sensitivity to what God says and, and is eager to do it. And that's what he says in verse 3. Those who study the social behavior of religious people have made two observations. Now watch this. They're interesting observations. They say that the children from parents who are non-believers and the children of parents who are deeply committed Christians find it easier to forgive the mistakes of their, of their parents than the children who are, whose parents are carnal Christians or nominal Christians. And the second observation is the most shocking. They say that most, the majority of Christian workers, those who, who are engaged in Christian vocations, come from homes of either non-believers or co totally committed homes, Christian homes, and very few come from the strata of, the, of those, from, from the homes of carnal parents or non-committed parents. And the conclusion that is drawn from that is this, that children have an expectation of what a Christian parent ought to be and how they ought to act, and they are not fooled by that. And when they don't see that expectation fulfilled of that which is claimed by their parents, it does something to them they never get over. Now, I'm not talking about just feeding information to your children and expecting them to spit back what you want them to say. That's not what I'm talking about. I heard a leader of a Christian camp, I read it one time, a leader of a Christian camp, he had all these kids together one summer and they were from, you know, kind of elementary school kids and they were all from church life and from church families. And he was giving them this biblical uh, trivia quiz. Man, they were snapping out the answers. Boy, they were right on. You know, how many names of all the tribes and, you know, how many wives did Solomon have and all those things. 
And he said he slipped this question in, just kind of slipped it in. He says, what is gray or brown, runs fast, climbs trees, and stores up nuts in the winter? And he said they just kind of all had this blank look on their face. He said, oh, now, come on. I'll give you a hint. It has a bushy tail. <laughs> what is gray or brown, runs fast, climbs trees, and stores up nuts for the winter? They just, nobody answered. Finally, a little girl said, I want to say a squirrel, but I'll say Jesus. Now, is that ridiculous or what? Uh, what, what, what was happening there was, we, we can feed you back all this information that we've gotten from our parents, but we don't know anything that's authentic. There is a permeation, the love of God. Second, there is the conscious consistent transfer of biblical truth to the child. Now read with me verses 6 and 7 of chapter 6. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you walk, when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Now that word diligently there in the English in our English translation is an adverb. In the Hebrew translation, it's a verb, and it's in the intensive stem. Hebrew, the Hebrew language has intensive stems. When they want that language to say something, you know, drive it home and make it powerful and make it stick. It's aggressive word. And what he's saying is this, is that in an authentic Christian home, the parents make it a positive and aggressive practice to transfer biblical truth to their children. They drive it home. They sharpen them. It is a mistake, my friend, to think that your children will absorb biblical truth by osmosis. And it is a mistake of graver consequence to think that if you take your children to church on Sunday morning and that's the only exposure they get to biblical truth, they'll get it. It won't happen. That command, that demand is placed squarely on the shoulders of the fathers and he's saying in essence, he's saying this, that it ought to be your aggressive practice to transfer biblical truth to your children. Now how do you do that? Well, he answers the question for us. He says, by talking about it. By talking about it. It's as easy, it's as, it ought to be like talking about the sports programs, about business at work, about fashion, whatever. He's saying that what ought to go on in your home is this, that, that there is this talking about the things of God which is so natural and comfortable that everybody feels free to do it. So the child feels comfortable to talk about the Lord and the parent feels comfortable to talk about God. What happens? What is your reaction when your children come to you and say and ask a question about God? Do you vapor lock and, and lock down and gridlock? We're talking about living stuff. He's saying that when you get out in the Every day and walk around and sit down and get up and, and, and eat dinner. You're talking about God. It ought to be as free and as comfortable as anything you talk about. 
He's not talking about preaching sermons or delivering discourses. I have a feeling our kids have heard those enough. A lot of stories about Billy Graham. One story was that after the Seattle crusade, just not long ago, he was flying back on an airplane, and there was a guy on that plane who was big old, great, big, large guy, and he'd already been drinking. He was pretty well shot by the time he got on the airplane, so he was ordering drinks two at a time. And the more he drank, the louder he got, and the more abusive he became. And he tried to pinch the surduses, and he was saying vulgar things to them. And he was just an embarrassment to the whole plane. Finally, one of the guys said, Sir, did you know who's sitting behind you? Billy Graham is sitting right here behind you. This is Billy Graham. The guy jumped up. He said, Billy Graham. He held out his hand and said, Put her there, Mr. Graham. You'll never know how much your sermons have meant to me. I have a feeling that all the sermons we preach and all the discourses we deliver really don't make as much difference as just talking about the Lord in a comfortable and relaxed way. Conscious, consistent transfer. Number three, there is this tender, humble heart of gratitude for God's provision. Now follow with me, verse 10. Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you. Great and splendid cities which you did not build, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you shall eat and be satisfied. Then watch yourself, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt and the house of slavery. Now what he's saying is not you're to avoid affluence. He's not saying that. He's not saying, you know, you need to not live in luxurious homes and beautiful cities. You need to get you a goat-haired robe and, and take a vow of poverty and go up in some cave. He's not saying for you to, 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 to disregard all modern conveniences and ride around in a buggy with a long robe. He's not saying that at all. He's not even saying that you should feel guilty if you have things. He's not saying that. What he is saying is this, is that when you get into this place where there is affluence and prosperity and good things, be very careful. Watch yourself, lest you forget God. And remember to tell your children where this came from. And don't forget to remind your kids that it was God who gave you the ability to have these things. For your children are not going to turn their eye away from things. For there is an allurement in possessions and pleasures and powers. Isn't that why we make the decisions we make? Because of possessions and pleasures and powers? He's not saying that you should avoid that. He's saying be very careful in the midst of that that you don't forget what is most important. He's saying don't get so wrapped up in the affluence of the land that flows with milk and honey, that you forget to prioritize first things first. 
I was reading the other day from, uh, an article in U U.S. News and World Report. Hans Jung, who is, the, who is a, a uh, oriental theologian, said, quote, most children are confused about values because they know their parents are confused. He said, kids are asking me today, why should I help anybody? Why should I not commit adultery? Why should I not steal? Why should I honor my father and my mother? We see values are standards or principles by which we judge worth. And the kids have seen that we place the most we place value upon things that don't really matter. And so God is saying, when you get into this new land of affluence, remember those things are not as precious as these little lives stood down here at the front. One last thought, please. One, for, one final essential. There must be frequent stated reminders of God's faithfulness and grace. Look at verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, saying, what do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean which the Lord commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh and all his household, and he brought us out from there in order to bring us in to give us this land. He's saying there needs to be the constant rehearsal of how it used to be. The constant rehearsal of what it was like the constant rehearsal of how faithful God has been to us. Kids don't know anything about Pearl Harbor. If you didn't, some of you remember, some of you were there. And so in every December the 7th, we remind kids of what it was like. And so he comes up to you and he says, Dad, how come you and mom believe in God? And you say, son, I'm glad you ask. Let me tell you what it used to be like for us. We were so miserable and unhappy. Our life was so unfulfilled. And we went out after the buck. And we, we, we did everything we could to be happy. And one day your mom and I found the Lord Jesus and our whole life was changed and fulfilled and every need was met. That's why we believe. So he comes up to you and says, Dad, why do you run your business the way you do? I'm glad you asked, son. Let me tell you what it used to be like. And so she comes up to you, Mom, and she says, Mom, why do you have this lifestyle? My friend's mother doesn't live like that. Oh, honey, let me tell you what I used to think. Dad, Mom, why do you take God so seriously? Oh, let me tell you why we th take God so seriously. Because we believe that the most important thing in life is to live for God. 
Now, I'm not a gloom and doomer, but I am here to tell you it's harder to live for Jesus than it's ever been. And that's why it's so important to answer the question, is your home genuinely Christian? In the early service, I ask people to come not in an emotional moment or anything, not emotional, not in an emotional invitation, but as a choice of the will and just stand for a prayer of commitment of their home to God, a commitment of these things to their home. We had many who came. We had four people who came to join this church and two adults who came for baptism. It seems to me that the key to this survival is the same. It's a return of the family to authenticity. Let's pray together. Our Father, I pray now that you will instruct our heart as to what it ought to be and give us courage to respond. For I ask in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Now there might be someone who would like to step out and just husband and wife, maybe your children are with you and you'd just like to come as an act of commitment of your home to these essentials. Or maybe you want to come and commit your life to Jesus Christ, first time decision as these came this morning, maybe to, for baptism. Or maybe you need to come and join our church. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.